Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, as you've already heard, we have doxology with us this morning. Uh, thank you for joining us. Two families of believers coming together. We also have um, lots of kids in our audience this morning. It's the fifth Sunday of the month. Uh, that is our family worship. Um, we don't have Portico kids, and we come together as a family all approaching Jesus as children of God, learning to worship him and trust in him as a family. Um, So thank you for Nadia and Joy for providing extra coloring sheets, um, things to keep our kids engaged. Um, But let's have grace. Um, We have extra voices, but they are, like I said, children of God. So I'm excited to have them in here with us. Um, Like I said, this is the fifth Sunday, so we kind of have a standalone message this morning. We just finished up four weeks going over Jesus coming, dying, rising again, and then the fact that he will come again. And we're taking a break before we jump back into Galatians next week. This week, um, I have a message for us from John 4, um, and I think there is a lot of good material in it. Um, I brought the tissues up with me. I may weep. I'm sorry if tears make you feel uncomfortable, but the older I get, the more I am realizing that I'm not enough. And I met with God's grace, and it blows me away each and every time. Um, So I'm sorry, again, if tears make you uncomfortable, but I will uh, try to minimize that as I can. Um, I want to ask you a question, and I don't need show of hands, um, but as I was going through this message, um, I think it's something that we all struggle with, and I'm going through my own thoughts of, I'm not enough, I don't have enough, I'm not a good enough father, I'm not a good enough husband, if people knew this about me, they'd see that I'm not enough. If people knew the things that I struggled with, they'd realize I'm not enough. Feelings of imposter syndrome. I'm not qualified to do this. If people only knew the sins that I struggled with, the, that I, I lacked these qualifications, that coupled with our society saying, you are enough. Find the identity within you. If you take control of your life, if you work hard enough, you can find your identity in yourself. You can be enough. That, that hits a lot this time of year. We hit a, a fresh year, we get a new start, which I think is great. There, there's something to be said for developing healthy habits, developing uh, a new start. Christianity is based on a fresh start. But as we read in the call to worship... It's not based on a fresh start on our works. It's based on a fresh start based on Christ's works. His perfect life. His sacrificial death on the cross for us. His triumphant resurrection. That we can have new life through Him. And as I'm unpacking this, I want to talk a little bit about shame and guilt. Um, 
probably not the message you were hoping to hear today. Uh, but like I said, I think there is some good stuff in here. So I was reading through some stuff by um, Brene Brown. She's a, a prof- professor, author, does a lot of stuff on leadership, does a lot of stuff on shame, um, and talking about guilt and shame. Guilt is typically associated with an event. I did something bad. It's the, the details, the wound. Um, I was playing uh, Clue with my, some of my nephews um, and my, one of my father's-in-law um, over the holidays, and that's exactly it, finding that it was Colonel Mustard in the observatory with the candlestick. He's guilty. Very easy to be cut and dry with guilt. Shame, on the other hand, is a little more difficult. It's a little less defined. It's typically tied to a person. Whereas, I did something bad in guilt. Shame is, I am bad. I'm not worthy of love. I need to hide. I need to avoid this is the scar. It's a, like I said, it's a little bit less logical than guilt. Less concerned with the details. And it can follow something you're guilty for, but it's also contagious. If you've ever dealt with infidelity or divorce or abuse, it's not just the person that's guilty of those things. That shame flows out. It's the comparison. I'm not as blank as... I'm not as good as this person. I'm not as well off as this person. I don't have the same things. It's that imposter syndrome. And I say all these things not to um, shame you as we go into a new year of don't do resolutions, don't become a better person, but to encourage you that God isn't waiting for you to take control of your life. He isn't waiting for you to be a better person, to not have shame, to not have guilt. He's pursuing you in your greatest need right where you are. He's trying to show you that He knows you intimately. There is nothing about your life that surprises Him. And He still loves you deeply. He's pursuing you into that. And He is superior for any plan of identity, any plan of redemption we try and come up with on our own. So this morning we are going to meet a woman who probably dealt with a lot of those same thoughts of, I'm not enough. I'm empty. I'm guilty. I have shame. I'm an outcast. And we're going to see a miracle of her going to look for water to quench her physical thirst with an empty jar. And a miracle of Jesus pursuing her spiritually empty, spiritually dry, and filling her with living water. Real quick, before we jump into our main text, 
I want to jump back to Genesis 2. God has created everything, the earth, everything that inhabits, inhabits it, man and woman, and given them the dominion over Eden. Work the land. You are in perfect communion with me. He didn't make you to, be, to come up with your own identity. You are dependent on him. And I want to look at how that chapter 2 finishes in verse 24 and 25. Genesis 2, 24 through 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It doesn't say they were filled with joy. It doesn't say they were filled with love. They were not ashamed. There was no shame. There was no guilt. None of us know what that feels like. But I bet it was a wonderful feeling. Perfect communion with God, perfectly known, perfectly seen. And then what happened? They were deceived. They were deceived into thinking they could come up with their own identity. They could be like God. So they disobeyed God's law, the one law that he he gave them, guilt. And what immediately follows that? Shame. What did they do? So they were, verse 25, and the man and wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Then we jump to chapter 3. They ate the fruit. Chapter 3, verse 7. Then their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. They knew they weren't enough. Shame followed. And then what did they do? They hide. They avoid. They deflect. And does God leave them there? No, he, he pursues them in their greatest need. The punishment for eating that fruit was death. Could have killed them right on the spot. But he pursues them into the garden. His grace and mercy pursues them. And then what do they, how do they respond? They deflect. Adam, why'd you eat the fruit? Eve told me to do it. Eve, why'd you eat the fruit? Serpent told me to do it. They're avoiding. And then Christ, or God, immediately comes up with, not comes up with, it was always the plan, his redemption. We read in verse 14 and 15, Because, talking to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a forecast of Christ. He's pointing to him, his plan of redemption. 
immediately pursuing them, not waiting for them to repent, not waiting for them to play in their own redemption. He pursues them in their greatest need and presents them with Christ. So we see how shame and guilt were built when they started two similar but different things that were born in the same garden. Before we go to our main message, let me open us in prayer. Dear God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you for your grace and mercy. God, we thank you for your love. God, we thank you that you do pursue us right where we are. You don't wait for us to be better people. God, you love us, you know us intimately. And you sent your Son out of your grace, mercy, and love to redeem us as your people. God, help me not to get in the way of your word this morning. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit is at work, that you will soften our hearts for this message, that you will open our eyes, and that you will transform us with your living water by the Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So our main message this morning is from John 4, 1 through 30. It is the woman, Samaritan woman at the well. And since we are starting a standalone, I want to introduce you to John a little bit, and then we can jump into the passage. So John is the fourth gospel written by John. We don't know which one. Uh, It could have been son of Zebedee or John the Elder, but it was a John that Jesus deeply loved. He's described as the disciple who Jesus loved. And this is an eyewitness testimony of Jesus' life. He opens with an introductory poem showing that Jesus is the Son of God. Fully God, but also fully man. Sent here to die for the sins of the world. And then he transitions. We we meet John the Baptist. The disciples are gathered. And we have seven different titles of who Jesus is. And we start to unpack that with a series of stories, a series of signs, a series of conversations that are miraculous, bold claims of who Jesus is. And each one kind of builds in controversy. At the end of each story, people are met with a choice. Is Christ who he says he is? Is he the Son of God? Is he fully man? Is he going to die for our sins and redeem his people? Finishes with the most controversial claim, most controversial story of him raising Lazarus from the dead. And it's at that point that 
the Israelite rulers take him into captivity, and we see his trial, his death, and ultimately his resurrection. So I want to pick up um, in chapter 4, verse 1. We're kind of towards the beginning of those uh, stories. He's about to leave Judea on his way to Galilee, and he's just had a conversation with a Jewish leader. Theologian, rabbi, very, very smart, very theological, and he meets him with, we need to be born again. You as a rabbi leader need me, and we're met with silence. So I want to pick up chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, and his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that... That Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, 
I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her jar, her, left her water jar, and went away into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. So as we unpack that, we're going to see, just as we saw in uh, Genesis chapter 3, that Jesus is pursuing her in her greatest need. And as we unpack that, we'll see Jesus is graciously intentional. Jesus is graciously relational. And Jesus is superior. So, Jesus isn't forced out of Galilee. He leaves, not forced out by the Pharisees, but he foresees as he's having more uh, people baptized than John, he doesn't want to diminish either ministry. They're working towards the same goal. This is every, um, every movement of Christ is thought out, is planned. He is laying his life down when the Israelites take him into captivity. They, they aren't in control. He's not being pushed out. He's intentionally leaving. We see that in verse 3. And then in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. If you know anything, uh, if you've read through um, Second Kings, you know that Assyria attacked Samaria around 722 B.C., and at that time deported all the Israelites of substance. They brought in a bunch of foreigners, and then they intermarried, and then kind of had their own methods of theology. They still believed the Torah, but they didn't follow any of the prophets. So there was a lot of animosity that developed between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jews viewed them as half-breeds. They viewed them as lower class. They viewed them as less than. They viewed them as unclean. There was a lot of animosity to the point that they would, if you go from Judea to Galilee, straight shot send you through Samaria. But they would cross the Jordan River, go through a bunch of Gentile land, skip Samaria, and then go into Galilee. It's not the route Jesus took. He had to go through Samaria. It's the fastest route, but it was not always viewed as the safest route for Jews traveling at that time. He had an appointment with a woman at a well. We see in verse 5 that he's intentional with that. He intentionally went through Samaria. He intentionally met her at this well. And then, as I said earlier, she's coming. We see a contrast in 
He's been walking for a few days. He's physically thirsty. She's meeting him at the well with an empty jar, physically thirsty. And we look at the time of day. It is the sixth hour. It's noon. It's hot. It's not when typically they would have gone to a well to fill their water jars. Typically, they would have done that in the early morning or in the evening where it's less hot. But this woman is an outcast. She's avoiding those times. Typically, they would come in groups of women, but she comes by herself. There's some shame there. She's avoiding people. She's coming at a time when no one else should be at the well. But who intentionally meets her there? Christ. She comes physically thirsty, and we'll see that he sees that she is spiritually thirsty. So she is avoiding those interactions. But in verse 6 and 7, we see Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and he said to her, Give me a drink. So not only is he intentionally meeting her there, he's bypassing the social taboos of interacting with a Samaritan, interacting with a woman, and then asking her for a drink of water. Jews viewed Samaritans as unclean. They didn't share utensils. They didn't share buckets of water. They viewed them as ceremonially unclean. And Christ is bypassing all of those taboos. He is intentional with his methods. Just as she is avoiding those interactions with people, we see that shame that I'm going to avoid, I'm going to deflect. So in verse 9, she avoids again. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? He's willing to engage though. He's willing to come down as a person and engage with a sinful humanity as he comes as a baby. And now he's engaging with this woman that everyone else views as a social outcast. She's by herself, and he's intentionally relational, intentionally wanting to meet with her. So he asks her a question. Verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, he would have given you living water. So he patiently turns the conversation back back to him, tries to open her eyes. And what does she do? Deflects again. Sir, you don't have a bucket. How are you going to get this water? 
you have nothing to draw with. And in verse 12, almost with a sense of expecting him not to be greater than, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons, as did his livestock. This well has been there for 1,500, 1,600 years, if my math is right, still providing water to physically uh, sustain thirst. Still operational today, 3,700 years later. But Jesus is superior to this well. While this well is quenching their physical thirst, he is offering living water. Living water that will quench her spiritual thirst. He says in verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up, for, welling up to eternal life. This is a, a mention of the Holy Spirit that is promised to reveal Christ to us, to help us, to be our, our greatest helper. He has seen that she is spiritually thirsty. He is superior to the methods that she is trying to quench her physical thirst. But she deflects again. The woman said to him, Verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she's missing the point again. Okay, fine. You have this water that you're going to get without a bucket, and it's going to eternally quench my thirst. Great. I'll take some so I don't have to make this trek all by myself. She deflects again. Fine, I'll take the water. She's missing the point. And then it, the conversation takes a weird turn here. Jesus says, Go, call your husband and come here. Maybe not the way I would twist a conversation. I'm not Christ. What he is doing here is showing her I know you. I know you in your deepest wound. I know you in your deepest shame. And I love you deeply. So she responds, I have no husband. That's it. Again, kind of a deflection, kind of it's not untrue. Jesus says, oh, that's true, but there, there's no follow-up. He says, Christ responds. Another deflection. He responds in grace. That's true. You were right in saying that. 
For you have had five husbands, and one now that is not your husband. What you have said is true. This woman has been searching for that same feeling Adam and Eve had at the beginning of the Garden of Eden. To be known. She's been trying to do it herself though. She's been searching in physical companionship, intimacy, but it has left her wanting left her in shame, and Jesus meets her right there. I know you, and I love you deeply. But that's the last mention he has of that. He doesn't reflect, spend time on that. She deflects again. Okay, fine, you know this intimate detail about my life. You must be a prophet. We see in verse 19. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on the mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. So she deflects again. Okay, you're a prophet. Take this big theological debate that the Samaritans have and the Jews have. Samaria worships God on the the mountain of Jerusalem. They've built a temple there to worship God. That's where they think they should be worshiping God. The Jews have the temple built in Jerusalem. That's where they've been told to worship God. That's where God... Heaven would come to earth and God would interact with his people at the temple. So she deflects about her life, says, oh, you're a prophet. Solve this debate. And Jesus responds to her. Jesus said to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do do not know, we worship what we know. The salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must obey, must worship him in spirit and truth." He's saying this debate is a moot point. I am here. The temple was pointing to me in the first place. You want to debate it? Fine. Christianity is of the Jews, it's the temple in Jerusalem. But the hour is coming. Anytime John talks about the hour coming, he's pointing to the cross. When I sacrificially die and resurrect again, the hour is coming when true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. Jesus is the truth 
The Holy Spirit is the Spirit. True worshipers will worship God through Christ by the power of the Spirit. She deflects again. Verse 24, 25. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. She deflects again. She says, okay, fine. That your answer to my theological debate is over my head. But the Messiah is coming. He'll explain all things. Jesus is graciously relational. He shows up and says, I who speak to you am he. This is the biggest revelation in the gospel of who Christ actually is. I am the Messiah. I am he. Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah to an outcast Samaritan woman who's not enough. And he says, Woman, I am he who you speak of. I am the Messiah you need. And it's at this point, like I said, John is setting these stories up for us to make a decision. Is Christ who he says he is? He's pursued her into her weakness. She tried to avoid and deflect. She went to the, the well by herself at an hour that no one should be there. And he meets her in her need. She avoids, avoids, deflects, deflects. And he is graciously relational. He continues the conversation, even though she keeps trying to deflect and shut it down. And then shows her, I am superior. I am the Messiah that you need. Greater than Jacob. Greater than any plan of redemption you can come up with on your own. I am enough. I know you in your deepest need. And my life, sacrificial death, and triumphant resurrection are enough. So we pick back up in verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar. Catch that. The woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. This woman came to the well to fill a water jar. It's what they did back then. They they needed water to drink, they needed water to do their chores, they needed water to cook. She came to quench her physical thirst. And she was met with the Messiah. 
Her circumstances didn't change. She's still on her sixth husband, still living with him, still in her greatest need, still needs water to physically live, but she is transformed by the living water that Christ gives her. This woman that was avoiding everyone and everything forgets why she even came to the well itself. She left her water jar there. And then the woman that's avoiding everyone goes back to her town and said, I've met the Messiah. Come. No care about how she's an outcast, how she's not enough. I've met the Messiah. He knows me. He knows me in my deepest need. He knows me in my guilt, my shame. And he loves me deeply. He is superior. My identity isn't in who I am. It is in him. She is transformed by knowing the Messiah. And we didn't read it before, but I want to jump ahead to verse 39. John four thirty-nine. Many Samaritans from this town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that it is indeed the Savior of the world. So this, this woman, this social outcast, this humble Samaritan woman, not a theologian, not a rabbi, I, I said much earlier that Jesus had had a, a conversation with Nicodemus, a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish leader, and tells him that you need me. You need to be born again with me as your Messiah. And he's met with complete silence. There's no more conversation that we hear from Nicodemus. But this humble, outcast Samaritan woman becomes an evangelist. Goes back to her town and saves her whole town. Not because of what she did. She simply led them to Christ. I found the Messiah who knows my guilt, who knows my shame, and deeply loves me. He is superior. He is enough. So I think as, as believers, we often put a heavy weight on evangelism, and we, it's hard for us. We feel like we have to be a theologian. We have to feel like we have to know all the answers. This woman didn't have all the answers. 
She simply showed up and said, this is my Messiah. He knows me. He knows me in my guilt, my shame, my hurt, and he is enough. Come make a decision for yourself. And because of that, her town is saved. So as we're applying that, we probably want to be Jesus in the story. We probably want to be the one that goes out of our way to show up at a well and evangelize, but we are the Samaritan woman in that story. We are guilty as unbelievers, probably feeling shame as believers, and need a Messiah in Christ that will meet us in our greatest need and be superior in it. We've read before Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For we are justified by grace through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, our works, that no one may boast. Our justification is based on Christ's works. His perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross in our place, and his triumphant resurrection. So we come to that gospel as both unbelievers and believers. Unbelievers, we are justified by Christ's death on the cross. But when we are met with shame, shame is that scar that we talked about earlier. It doesn't necessarily go away. It's a little less defined. It's a little more uncomfortable. But when we are feeling that, we need to come back to the same gospel message. That is not our works. It's not anything we can do, but his life, death, and resurrection. And as he's dealt with our guilt, we can have confidence in him on that cross. And we, we're reminded in Romans that hope doesn't put us to shame. His love has been poured into our hearts through that living water, the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So we sh- shouldn't feel the shame, but if you're anything like me, you have, and you come running back to the grace, mercy, and love of a Messiah in Jesus that will meet us in our greatest need and be triumphant, be superior to any method of redemption we can come up with on our own. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the ways that you have sustained our church and continue, will continue to do so in 2024. God, my prayer this morning is that we meet your son, Jesus, whether believers or unbelievers. 
that we are filled with your Spirit. The living water that can transform us into a fountain. And that is by that power that we are then able to do the good works that you've prepared for us, God. God, I pray that we would not feel like we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, take control of our own life, but we would see that you are pursuing us right where we are. God, we thank you. We love you. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.